the pigs need to get the first diet and the amount that it's supposed to be gotten at. That's the most important diet that they will ever receive outside of mom. The next most important diet they get is a second diet in the nursery. And uh, so those have to be executed on. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Roundtable. This is a new series of episodes created by the Swinet Podcast and Cargill, where we'll have roundtables with experts of the global swine industry tackling subjects that can influence the producer's bottom line. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. Cargill supports the podcast goal of helping pork producers improve their systems and business. Let's get back to the podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have a trio of individuals. I have Dr. Dean Boyd, who is a nutrition consultant. Catherine Price, who works with Cargill as a swine nutritionist and nutrition analyst supervisor, and Ken Moody, who is also a Cargill swine nutritionist. So welcome everyone to today's podcast. Um, as we get started, I think it would be really nice for all of you to maybe give our audience a little bit more background about who you are. So um, Dean, you're first on my list, so we'll have Dr. Dean Boyd start. Oh, thank you, Laura. Uh, I retired from the Hanor uh, Company Tribe Foods Group. I've been uh, in academia and industry for more than 40 years, and I presently uh, consult for uh, several groups that I really enjoy working with. So, Wonderful. Well, we're glad to have you on today. Uh, Dr. Catherine Price, we'll go with you next. Thank you for having me today, Laura. Um, I'm Dr. Catherine Price. I have been with Cargill for just over 10 years. I am a swine nutritionist with the company. I work with both international and domestic customers. And recently I have transitioned to a new role where I manage our nutrition analyst team or our team that really is responsible for our day-to-day -day connecting with customers, diet strategy, nutrient understanding, and nutrient utilization in diets. Perfect. Thank you, Catherine. And lastly, we have Dr. Ken Mooney. Yes, thanks, Laura. Uh, I'm Dr. Ken Mooney. I've been in the industry for about 26 years, uh, three years at Continental Grain and 23 years in Cargill and located in uh, North Carolina. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad to have you all on today. Uh, as we were talking before we started the podcast, the topic that we're going to really dive into today is, is around E. coli challenges in the nursery. And I think this is a really timely topic. We've heard certainly um, even last fall during the McKean conference of challenges with, with E. coli in the nurseries and what people are trying to do to circumvent those issues. So I think we'll just kind of start at the big 5,000 foot view and then we'll dig down into it. So um, what are you all seeing this year? How have we progressed uh, in terms of our management with E. coli? Laura, I'll take a, a shot, and uh, a 5,000 foot view is the shot I'll take, and probably this is where my age pays off. Um, it seems to me that in the last two to three years, 
And I will say, uh, Dr. Kara Donovan and our system agrees that uh, we've had uh, pathogenic uh, E. coli breaks at a point in the nursery that we've not experienced before, except in a rare fashion. So we've had uh, some reemergence, uh, and it's happened in the later nursery uh, phase as we move particularly to a corn soy. And what is striking about this that we are seeing in the field is that um, previously, farms that previously typically did not have breaks when their progeny went into the field, now are having problems. Uh, and there's even some new farms that are putting out apparently very healthy pigs who themselves will break with E. coli uh, mid-nursery. And this is not only in multiple cell farm flows, which is a uh, more dangerous approach to take if you must, but it's even happening in single cell farm flows. And with a couple of systems that I work with, um, they've identified that this is uh, E. coli F18. And uh, that typically would emerge and show itself in a, li a little later and show itself in a different format than K88, for example. So this is uh, almost a generalized occurrence in the industry. So Dean, I heard you mention that it appears to happen when we transition out of what we consider the more complex nursery diets. And as we transition into corn soy, is that a, a fair reiteration of what you said? Yes, okay. it is, yes. Okay. And so pigs are probably in the barns for about three weeks before we see this emergence of, of E. coli today. That's correct. And so uh, as a little hint to what some have done, then uh, as we leave that last diet that typically has uh, the higher levels of zinc oxide, then instead of getting the typical looseness, slight looseness that we would have in going from one diet to the next, that's when we have problems with uh, diarrhea among other things. Well, that's interesting. So if, if any of you could speculate, why are we hearing about this now? So we've dealt with hemolytic E. coli for years, right? The hemolytic E. coli is, is nothing new, but as, as Dean indicated, the prevalence seems to be uh, much more common today, and certainly in some cases more severe than previously anticipated. So does can we speculate as to what might be happening there in, in terms of why we're seeing this today? In, in this one, I decided to step out on a plank, and I'd like to be very clear that this is my personal opinion, and uh, uh, has nothing to do with input from their end. So, I do have an opinion, as you might have imagined, Laura. Um, this E. coli reemergence that's happening later than we have uh, seen it over decades appears to coincide with greater use of the duroxire that has been we've been moving toward more 
as an industry over the last two years. And that's certainly the case for the Honor company that went uh, away from primarily a white synthetic uh, that had more mortality in finish to the, the Duroc that had a more favorable outcome in the finish phases in terms of viability. And as we made a wholesale change, that's when we saw the problem occur. Now, I'm not saying that that for sure. I'm just saying I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and uh, uh, that I'm not saying that all Duroc lines would have this malady, but I will say that it's known uh, to some who have been immersed in, and I'm one of those, in the uh, art of genetics, uh, that genetic lines vary markedly in their susceptibility to F18 E. coli. Uh, PIC some years ago, more than 20 in fact, developed a science for detection of um, animals that were especially vulnerable or were um, completely resistant to F18 E. coli, which the Hanor system and another system I indicated are fighting. And so we knew it at that time and we knew how the sires varied and we started on a course to uh, take care of it, but we were told not to worry about it by various industry people who indicated that if in the future it did emerge, then, um, uh, then we could simply use uh, zinc oxide. And so, uh, and, and, and so it has emerged. And as I said, I, uh, I know that lines vary significantly. I think that's more toward the root cause, but it didn't help us uh, when Mechanox became fairly limited because as we found more recently, Laura, for people that you're probably quite familiar with, uh, Luft and Associates in the National Animal Disease Center, uh, ARS Ames, Iowa, that published in Frontiers and Microbiology that mechadocs, if presented early to the pigs, were fairly resistant to uh, uh, a problem if challenged when they went on to the simple diet and challenged with E. coli. Uh, but if they did not receive it early, then they indeed if were affected significantly. So I think that was something that exposed uh, the monster uh, to us as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, some of your perspective. And, and certainly we have challenged those, those similar questions here and, and asked you know, certainly about antibiotics and, and their role, and particularly because this is a delayed response. And so what are we changing in the diets uh, from weeks one, two, and three to then, of course, trigger the E. coli to, to take a hold? So 
let's step away from speculation on what's maybe causing the problem, but let's focus in on now what we can do as nutritionists to mitigate the challenge. We've talked about E. coli challenges and mitigation programs over the years. This one seems to be a little bit more difficult for us to manage. And so what are some things that, that you're hearing from a nutritional intervention that we should try? Yeah, Laura, uh, Dean already mentioned uh, the use of zinc oxide, which most of us are using uh, pharmacological levels at 3,000, 2,000 level. Um, one thing we're doing as well is taking that all the way out to the end of the nursery, uh, maybe using it at, at 1,200, 1,250 parts per million range uh, all the way through the nursery. Um, the biggest problem is that fermentable protein getting to the hindgut. So, you know, what can you do to reduce that? Um, one thing we do is reduce crude protein. Um, you try to reduce those ingredients that are, that are causing this. So you reduce, you know, soybean meal levels. You try to increase maybe further processed soybean products uh, that have some of those anti-nutritional factors taken out um, that, that aren't quite as costly as maybe some, some animal products. Uh, one thing we're doing too is we're, there's, there's a new interest in this uh, re reduction of calcium in the diet because it does buffer uh, the, the gut. And so um, my customer with the largest problem, we have reduced the level of calcium and we have also increased the amount of organic acids in the diet, as well as maybe trying to acidify the water to try to get that acidification back up in the gut to keep those pathogens down. And I think, Ken, if we continue to add on to that, there would be don't forget fiber and what we're learning with fiber and what it can do. Different fiber types can help stimulate and help the gut mature. But then if you look at a more fermentable fiber source, they can actually help in the uh, help with the ideal gut microbiota profile, right? So help us limit those bad bacteria and help those good bacteria flourish. Um, another simple one that if there's not a system today that's super dosing phytase, you should be, right? And so we know that the more phytate that we can have released. We can re we've seen reductions in scours and not to mention the improvements in performance we can get by just simply superdosing phytase in our diets. Um, and Ken, I know you have some experience too. If you look at that last phase diet, do you feed it as a whole big chunk from 25 to 50 or so? Or as systems evolve and we start to have more health challenges or see coli popping up, I think us as nutritionists have to rethink that new nursery program. Is it a three phase? Is it a four phase? Um, how do we split our phases? What does that look like? And how do we help that more disease susceptible animal transition smoother and easier to get them out of the nursery? Yeah, you're, you're correct, Catherine, especially as, as Dean alluded to, you know, it's breaking later on in the nursery. And so what I've done is taken that last diet and maybe started a split diet at maybe 20 to 22 pounds to maybe 35, and then from 35 to whatever their finishing weight is in the nursery. And that does seem to help uh, uh, alleviate that a little bit. The other thing too is also uh, like from the European standpoint, uh, the very first diet uh, where we do have E. coli issues even starting earlier, um, I do lower the SID lysine. So maybe 0.1 to 0.15 percentage points. So quite a bit um, to get that gut set up, get that pig eating, um, so that the, the bacteria doesn't have a chance to take over. And from this one customer, we, what we've ended up doing is lowering the SID lysine almost all the way through because it's very severe. 
um, and it has helped tremendously. There, yes, there's a little bit of a decrease in gain, but nothing compared to the profitability of losing those pigs. So we try to keep them alive and, and they get some compensatory gain perhaps. Yes, you all brought up some really interesting ideas and some things I'm going to bounce back and forth on here. So um, Ken, I'm going to start with you. You mentioned adding in organic acids and acidifying the water. And, and there are a lot of different organic acids out there. There are a lot of different water acidifiers. Are you talking something as simple as putting citric acid in the water and using a general organic acid mix or are there specific organic acids that you're targeting? Yes, in our case, uh, since I am working for Carga, we do use our proprietary um, acidifier in the, in the feed, uh, but we are just using citric acid through the water as well. Um, one thing we've done too is we've, we've told them to make sure that you clean your water lines. Um, it's very often overlooked. There could be uh, pathogens sitting behind that nipple. Um, go ahead and clean it out. Uh, maybe run a little bit through as, as the pigs are going just to make sure that that's clean too because you're just recontaminating the pigs. That's a really good point. The other one that caught my attention was the zinc. So you're leaving zinc levels up to the end of the nursery, you said to about, to about 1,200 parts per million. Um, and we know that if we take that too high, we can see lameness into the finisher. So have you monitored that and made sure that, I mean, we would believe that's a, an acceptable level, um, but just wanna make sure we validated that we're not picking up anything in the finisher. Yes, and that's one reason that I also position the splitting of that diet. So from maybe 20 to uh, 35 pounds, we do it at 1250 and then reduce it, but not back to just uh, regular levels. It's still, it could be elevated a little bit, but not quite as high all the way to 50 pounds. And we've been successful not seeing any lameness uh, in the finishing with that. Perfect. And there've been a number of systems, Laura, that have uh, done that at 12 to 1500 uh, and split it and uh, have been very successful. Uh, the cases that have been ugly have used higher levels and uh, that's where they've had problems. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with some of those cases, unfortunately. And um, so that's why I wanna make sure we have our cautionary label out there, right? Is that uh, like most things, too much of a good thing can be bad. So just reminding people that yes, we know zinc's effective, but be careful because on the back end of that, we could come into the complications. Um, Catherine, you had thrown out fiber and, and I think fiber is an interesting one. Again, you, you said not all fiber is similar. So can you help the audience kind of understand a little bit better as to what fibers you think are, are more beneficial to that piglet early on? Yeah, for sure. So it's an area that we've been focusing on and many in the industry, but an area that Cargill has been focusing on is the fibers and you have structural or you have some fermentable fibers and what is that role they have in performance and in the gut and how do you evaluate the ingredients for these components? And so if we look at a more structural type of carbohydrate, they are not enzymatically digested or fermented. And so they're able to give a mechanical stimulation to the gut. And so it would be something like a rice holes or a wheat bran that you could add in to the diet. And we would like to see these early on in the nursery period, just after weaning to help with that gut stimulation. And then as we transition to a little bit older animal, you start to look more at these fermentable fiber sources. Uh, and so those would be like a beet pulp or a soy holes. And so 
I, I we we pick with Ken a lot that he's Dr. Beat Pulp sometimes because it's an old technology, right? It's an old ingredient that's been around and many people will use it in terms of scours or health issues. And this probably helps explain why, right? It is contributing uh, to that fermentable fiber function or fraction in the diet. And so it helps improve intake. Uh, it's gonna help improve the stool consistency and condition. And, and so that's where we've started to look at these fibers and really try to understand them and the roles they play in early and late nursery. And this can continue right out to the end of the nursery and even maybe into growth in, and that's an area we'll continue to work on. Uh, but right now that's what we'll look at is if we have a E. coli source or scours, we might see us use a beet pulp or some soy holes to bring into the diet to help with this fermentable piece. So building off of that just a little bit, when you think about adding the fiber to the diet, are you focused on a percent inclusion in the diet or are you focused on an NDF, ADF number? Where, how do you pick you know, your inclusion? Uh, we do have a couple of nutrients we have created that allows us to formulate to a specific fermentable or structural fiber target. And so that is how we will help decide the level that we use in the diet. Um, you know, old way of doing it, probably just say throw 50 pounds of beet pulp, you know, in the diet. And so now we're really trying to fine tune where does that number really need to sit if we're chasing an enteric issue. Well, and I think that's the, the point, right? Is that even within fiber sources, as you mentioned, the piece that we're looking for isn't the same percentage of that ingredient. And so instead of treating it like a, well, 10% inclusion of a fiber source, that's that's probably not realistic or correct. And so maybe changing our thought processes is, is what we need to be thinking about. Yeah, great point. Um, one that we haven't talked about when I think of fiber is or gut health issues. I think of rolled oats. Uh, we used to use a lot of rolled oats particularly in the first couple of phases of, of the nursery. Does that have any advantage here when, when we're dealing with this E. coli? Rolled oats are great. Everybody loves them. Um, everybody wants to see them in their diet. If there is a scours concern and a producer can't see oats in their diet, they're gonna be calling up to ask because they go hand in hand. Um, and, and so I, I think I've heard it said, you know, goats could be almost soothing to the gut. They have a nice profile too. If we stop and look at, Ken mentioned fermentable proteins, or if you look at structural or fermentable fiber sources, they actually have a nice profile that help us meet some of these specs in the diet. So they are definitely an ingredient. I think all of us, I know Dean and Ken and I all, we love oats too, right? We're gonna use, tend to use higher levels of oats and we would have a higher level of oats in our nurture program um, for that reason. So would you carry the oats then through to the third phase? If we're concerned about the E. coli, are you carrying it into that third phase or is this more about establishing the right flora in the gut before the potential E. coli issue? Yeah, we, we have done that. We, uh, you know, again, oats are expensive and they're getting more expensive every day. Um, we do try to limit the use of it, but we, we do continue to use it uh, if it's severe enough, um, maybe at 50 pounds or so in the, that third diet. Uh, but do try to get it taken out as, as quick as we can. Um, I have seen where some people, you know, you said, you know, a little bit's good, more is not good. This is true with oats too. I've seen where they've used it at very, very high levels. Yes, it will clear up scours. It will take care of that situation. But my job is also to help this producer make money. 
So I've seen performance be hurt and, and hammered all the way through to finishing because of what they did earlier, trying to take care of the E. coli. So we do try to balance, try to save enough pigs, get the gut back on where it needs to be, but not, you know, just use it just to solve the problem and then say, okay, now what? So there is a certain limit as we get starting to learn about, you know, our, our fermentable fiber and structural fiber, how much to use. Laura, if I could make a comment uh, to follow on what Ken and Catherine have stated. Um, this this uh, problem uh, is, is something that is thrust upon us because of a number of things that might have gone wrong upstream. And we all know that about 65% of how the pigs do downstream depends on the south farm that they came from. And so we're hoping that everything is being done at the south farm to limit the amount of E. coli seeding of the pigs. Sometimes uh, that is being done well, sometimes it's not being done well enough. Then we receive the pigs into the farm and there are some veterinary aspects uh, that uh, can be done. And I will call your attention to Dr. Elise Tuhill of uh, Carthage, who gave an unbelievable uh, and concise discussion of veterinary uh, considerations around E. coli reemergence. It was uh, episode number three, APC. Uh, December 2021. And so I would refer people to that. We're not authorized uh, to speak in that vein. But the thing is, when Ken and Catherine, uh, where they're at, they get the pigs that they get. And there are some things that can be done. Fortunately, F-18 is hitting us later. And so considerations like water vax is important. But then on to the type of diets, you have to structure those diets as Catherine and Ken have indicated, but you know, you can make, a, as Catherine and I were talking about last night, uh, you can make the greatest diet on paper, but the pigs have to get it. And so as a veterinarian would tend to um, emphasize is farm execution. And so uh, the pigs need to get the, uh, first diet and the amount that it's supposed to be gotten at. That's the most important diet that they will ever receive outside of mom. The next most important diet they get is a second diet in the nursery. And uh, so those have to be executed on. What do we do in the field to rob ourselves of that? Well, we pull in with a truck full of feed and we put in nursery one. And then because we wanna be efficient on our transport of feed, we put uh, nursery two on top of nursery one. So those two blend. And as it goes farther down the barn, the pigs in the last third are, are for certain not getting the budget of nursery one. And they've already started transitioning to nursery two. So if a nutritionist is going to exercise uh, some uh, passion anywhere, it is to put nursery one in, in one bin, nursery two in another bin, hopefully have tandem bins, and having the truck completely full to save every dollar uh, is uh, something you may have to compromise on in this stage. 
And then certainly you don't want to put the corn soy diet on top of nursery too. So, and the, the getting of the tube length proper, uh, properly sized uh, for the pigs coming in, that's very important. And so that absolutely positively must be done. Execution in the field. All pigs need to get their budget. And then Dean, you added that, right? A long fill time that just compounds the issue and you know sets us up for not the best success rate. <laughs> you just get a more concentrated seeding, I suspect, and Laura, you would know this best of the E. coli. They came to us seeded to some extent and then things that we do early on can make it worse. But again, as at, we're all doing the best up front to try to minimize the damage on the back end, the most powerful thing we can do diet-wise is with zinc. Some will go ahead and add copper, have maybe 1,200 to 1,500 units of zinc, 160 or so of copper, and maybe go half the corn soy phase that Kevin has spoken of. And then as they pull the zinc, perhaps the copper uh, continues. So the biocidal effects are taken care of and you hope that you can use mechadox up front. And if you do, it puts the nutritionists in a little better situation and they don't have to do such extreme things uh, that they know they what to do, but they just hope they don't have to employ some of those things, <laughs> so. You, you bring up a good point too. We talk about seeding of, of the pigs as they come in from the from the sow farm. Is there something we should be thinking about from a nutrition perspective back at the sow farm? Should we be revisiting creep feeding or exposing them to probiotics or anything of that nature to help set that gut up so that again it's it's better? Um, and the reason why I'm asking is I've long argued that pigs that are on a relatively long transport. They're transported on empty bellies because the milk doesn't stay in the in the belly for very long. And of course, any opportunity that we have then for an empty belly, we have opportunity for bacteria to take hold. And so creep feeding kind of gives that belly a little bit more food to kind of hold it and, and keep those pigs in a direction that we want. What's your thoughts on that? I'm just kind of throwing that out to the crew. Is that something we should be reconsidering with, with E. coli? I'll take a quick shot at this. Um, I think if there's any reason to go to Dr. Two Hill's talk, this is it. Because she does a great job of what has to be done at the sow farm to try and minimize the damage from a health perspective. And that needs to be considered. I know for a fact there are some veterinarians that have not, uh, followed the pattern she suggests. But the most important thing we can get into those little pigs is a maternal antibody. But if the gilts that were developed, the last time they received a vaccine to develop that, whereas developers, then probably very little maternal antibody is going to come to their need. And I think you bring a, a good point as to what can be done uh, in addition to that that being the hierarchical uh, aspect. What can we do in addition? Uh, and so maybe uh, creep feed that has uh, zinc in it uh, can be helpful. I will again uh, show my age. Um, 
if you don't mind, uh, in the event that I cannot get the help that I need on the maternal antibody side, the thought has come to my mind that to do what was being done in the mid-1980s is to add some zinc oxide to the lactation diet. <laughs> but and, and so the creep feeding there is actually through the sow species. And so one might do creep feeding or one might uh, be holistic almost and allow the sow to creep feed. So that's kind of extreme. But the fears about uh, whether that's problematic have been dealt with long ago by Gretchen Hill, Elwin Miller, et cetera. 800 PPMs is, is nothing. I'd like not to do that, but uh, it's something I would consider if I can't get the maternal antibody help that I need. So this is an independent view. So I, I think we've hit some really good topics here, and I know we probably could talk for easily another half hour to an hour and, and go through additional discussions around different ingredients and as well as how we alter that environment to get those pigs eating quicker once they are in the nursery. But uh, we are kind of running out of time, so I would like to wrap up the, the discussion with each of you giving a few key points as to what you think would be valuable. I'll take a shot if you like. If I'm in the midst of heat of a fire and I'm, I'm using, and I know you say there's different genetics, they're all having problems. But if I were using a Duroc sire, I hope, I, I would want to know if it has uh, two copies of the genes that make it homozygous receptive and resistant to uh, the, the it's a, it's a F18, it's DR2 SNP, basically. I would like to know that about the boars that are in my stud. And I would like to know how that fits with the sows, because as they match with the sows, then that's a population of pigs I get. I would like to know from my veterinarians what will be done at the sow farm and what will be done at as the pigs hit land uh, out in the wild. And then uh, as uh, we've indicated we want to compose those diets with real profession, but we want to make certain that um, the diets are gotten by all of the pigs. If you cut a four pound budget of the first diet down to two, plan on losing pigs. We, we, were, we had to prove that in our system to get it so a truck didn't come out with 24 tons of feed. The first truck many times does, isn't a complete truckload. And that's, that's fine because if we do, we kill pigs. And so, and then there comes a moment where after everything we've done, they'll be cautious, but it's a fairly harsh uh, thing that we're going to get if we don't have the upfront stuff done right, which hopefully would include mechadogs where it can be used, so. Ken, do you have anything to add? Yeah, on top of that, so if I have a customer that uh, calls and says, you know, I'm starting to break, um, that very day, right then and there, over the phone, uh, there's three things we can do without bringing any products or anything in, and that is to, to lower the calcium, to help bring up that, the, the acidification, um, split that diet up into two diets. We can do that over the phone, get that going, and as well as lowering the, uh, the lysine in the diet, SID lysine. Those can all be done over the phone at right then and there. 
without bringing in products and to get it started at least. And I kind of call that the uh, the temporary hold, if you will, that, until we can figure out exactly what we need to do. But you need to start as quick as you can. Thank you. And Catherine? Yeah, I would echo what Ken and Dean have said and would say our job as nutritionists is to be nimble and quick. We've got to be ready for a plan, like Ken said, when that call comes. But uh, nutrition can only take us so far. So we've got to work with the vet community, the producers to see what else might be triggering it or exacerbating it um, because it's not going to be the only answer that we have. We can do a lot of great things with nutrition. We've talked about them today, but we'll need help from the whole system to make sure we tackle this issue. I could add one more thing. Would that be okay? Yes, <laughs> I, so I do apologize, but uh and, and also where nutritionists can uh, show their management skills is um, it's, it's, we don't like to see some uh, mismanagement things done that would trigger, such as it's about time for the corn soy diet, but we're going to go pump the pit. Pumping the pit is going to drop the temperature in the barn. It's a heck of a trigger for a problem. If we've had a site that has had it before, then especially cleansing it uh, and, and including hot water and lime can be a very important thing. So we want to make sure it's clean, but we don't want to do things that are triggers, having double stock pigs overcrowded and then fur further triggered by a, a sudden change of temperature puts us in uh, a world of hurt, so. It is time to our famous three. So as we wrap up, as you all know, we do ask our speakers um, a few basic questions. The first question that we ask everyone is, what is your favorite swine resource that you would recommend to our audience? Well, I would say, I don't know if it's my favorite, but because of what's been going on, like you mentioned with the E. coli, the strep, the furs, um, I'm not an immunologist, but I'm learning how to be one. Uh, I have two books, uh, Nutrition and Immunology, uh, David Clerfeld and Inflammation and the auto, Autoimmune Solutions by Alex Vasquez. Um, and, and this whole situation with COVID, we've learned quite a bit just from the human side on what to do with viruses. Very good one. Catherine, do you have any books that you'd recommend? Mine probably aren't so much as books as versus I really enjoy the number of digital tools available and podcasts. Uh, I know I've heard others mention on the podcast on the show before, but being able to log in and listen to a podcast while working or doing errands or chores, it just makes it easy. So I'm more of that digital tool fan right now. Perfect. Dean, how about you? Uh, quickly, uh, I really enjoy the Diseases of Swine book that came out a few years ago. I've always enjoyed that. But uh, and that's been especially helpful because at least I can ask more intelligent questions. I'm probably one of the few swine nutritionists that have the brand new Diseases of Poultry Volume 1, which is very helpful in this area as well. And now that I'm retired, I'm really enjoying reading my 1,500-page book on, on essentials of pathophysiology. And... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I'm into this exhilarating part of my life. <laughs> I'll have to look at that book, 1,500 pages. That, 
that's a little bit more than one night of reading for sure. <laughs> it has a lot of pictures. I, I look at the pictures and the legends. So I'm able to move faster through it now. I need the pictures for sure. <laughs> How about um, any books that are not related to pigs that anybody would recommend to our audience for something fun or enjoyable? I'm I'm not sure Dean's 1500 page <laughs> book there might be considered enjoyable by some, but are there any other recommendations? I was just going to say, I think for professional development, some those books aren't always the easiest to read. They can sometimes are quite boring, but Patrick Lencioni does a really nice job of turning a learning moment on development into a nice story that's easy to read. Um, I think one of my favorites by him was Death by Meeting. And I think we could all learn from some of those examples on meetings and meeting etiquette and being succinct in our meetings. Perfect. Thanks, Catherine. Dean? I've always enjoyed uh, Milton Friedman uh, and uh, Milton and Rose Friedman wrote a book called Free to Choose. And uh, Milton won the um, Nobel Prize in economics uh, decades ago. But the one thing that he, he and Rose wrote about uh, in a very good way was the relationship between freedom of choice and economics. And I think that while we have the freedom of choice, we want to really make the right choices. And I think what they were trying to do there is ground us in correct principles to help us in making that uh, good choice. So anyway. Very good. Thank you, Dean. Ken? Uh, with, with my four kids, I don't have much free time to read things <laughs> other than work related. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll have to pass on that until I get to Dean's age and can retire, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> which isn't too far behind. I understand. <laughs> okay, so the last question that we like to ask our speakers really focuses around if you can envision somebody who's successful in our industry, and you can define success however you want to, what is a key trait that you think has allowed them to be successful? Well, what, what I've seen, especially with the, you know, as, as even on our own group, we start to hire younger people. Um, their ability to look at problems in a different way than I have, um, outside the box, if you will, um, and to not be afraid to fail. I know in some of our meetings, I've seen within our group since we've all gone digital for such a long time, you can kind of read faces when someone says something like, what are they thinking? And as you, they explain themselves, they're like, wow, I've never thought of it that way. And I think if you're not, not afraid to fail and people are open to listening to you, I think we can all learn something from them and they're going to be successful in my view. Absolutely. Catherine. I enjoy watching and learning from those that pretty much like Henry continue to bring solutions or innovations and ideas uh, that really think critically those go-getters that are going to bring it out front and, and not afraid to speak it up and, and say something. So good communication and listening skills, um, really good at, getting their point across and convincing a room that, hey, this is an area we should look at. And, and so those convincing skills, I, I'm always fascinated by people that are that have that strength. Dean? In, in terms of uh, successful, I'm not thinking so much as uh, successful in terms of wealth. It could be someone in business. It could be someone who's a school principal. It could be someone who is into human architecture and uh, homeschooling children and developing them. But I like to see someone who has, who is learned through the School of Hard Knocks, et cetera, but also was wise because um, 
the the axiom is that one when one is learned, they think they are wise. And uh, I think we need to try to have a good balance between learning and wisdom, and then have a passion for pursuing truth. But they have to be uh, not hold on to biases. And when an idea simply isn't principled, you have to drop it quickly. And so uh, those are some things that strike me, but especially uh, the importance of team and using team members, listening to them, turning loose their capabilities and uh, hiring ones that are smarter than you. If you're in business, they've always got to be smarter. You just hope they aren't rude to you. And uh, (laughs) that's important. Perfect. Well, thank you all again for your insight today. It's it's been a pleasure visiting with all of you. And um, I look forward to, to hearing more about our progress as we work through this challenge of E. coli. So again, for our audience, we had uh, Drs. Dean Boyd, Catherine Price, and Ken Meany on today. So thank you all again for your time. Thank you, Laura. Thank, thank you. you. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.